welcome to another episode of Journey to the Rise. I'm your host, Lucretia. In today's episode, we talk with Tim Ormond, and he shares a story that began in Hollywood with his parents making their mark on the film industry. Tim grew up watching his parents writing scripts, directing, and producing movies. He naturally took to the industry and has spent his entire life in film. His family did it all from westerns, burlesque horror films, as a mother-father-son trio. Tim shares behind-the-scenes stories that can be found in a book that has recently been published titled The Exotic Ones, That Fabulous Filmmaking Family from Music City, USA by Jimmy McDonald, showcasing the Ormond family and their inspiration on the film industry. Tim opens up and shares the ups and downs that were faced making a living in the world of the film industry in this episode. So let's not wait any longer. Please welcome my guest, Tim Ormond. I'm really excited to have our guest on today. He is such a special person and has an incredible, beautiful history with his family and himself in the film industry. And it is such an honor to talk with him, to spend time with him, and to have him share his stories with us. Tim, thank you so much for being here. It's kind of interesting to see you on Zoom, Lucretia, because the last time <laughs> I saw you was in Nashville, in person. But it's a, a wonder that we have this technology, which kind of allows us to reach out wherever we are. It's made the world a, a much smaller place. But uh, And by the way, you may hear my dog, who's uh, Noah. He, he may uh, talk to us in a minute. He comes Hi, over Noah. and says, who are you talking to? Yeah, he, he's just down, uh, he's Hi. right by my right hand. Excellent. So you want me to just spiel out a bunch of talk? Or you yeah, yeah, because you have quite the history in the film industry. Um, like, is it true that you grew up under the Hollywood sign? Well, I, we lived on, let me think, 3020 Beachwood Drive, which was uh, two, three miles down from the Beachwood sign. Uh, I used to go up there as a kid. Of course, you can't now it's fenced off but back then I actually went out with a friend and we sat on one of the letters I forget which one and there was a I know you're into horses so there was a riding academy up on top and some trails really so yes we uh, I, I, I went to Cherimoya which a uh, grammar school which is at the base of uh, Beechwood Drive and uh, yes I grew up uh, right down from the Hollywood side or at least until we moved that is yeah, I'm yeah. throwing the ball there for my dog. <laughs> yep, I did. Then we moved to San Fernando Valley. And then the, later I went to school in Louisiana. And then we came up to Nashville. Wow. Now, so I heard hear that. story of how. I how do, I, but I also heard that Trigger was your neighbor. Well, what's interesting about Trigger, he was my neighbor, but there was more than one Trigger. Uh, when, when you say Trigger, you're speaking of Roy Rogers' Trigger. And there were several triggers. They all looked the same, basically, but each one was trained to do a specific thing, like rearing or galloping or whatever. Uh, one of the triggers lived next door to me. That's where he grazed. I, I don't know what his specialty was, but I do remember you know, patting him on the nose. <laughs> I didn't get to meet Roy Rogers, but uh, he had one of his people you know, out there taking care of it. But yeah, fun memory. That's that awesome. That was in San Fernando Valley. Wow. And how did, because both of your parents were involved in the film industry. What were their roles in film? Oh, gracious. I mean, I'd have to go back in time to give you a little bit of history on that. 
uh, in the book, which uh, uh, you can, I don't know that we'll be able to put the link on here. It goes into a great deal of history. It's called, uh, well, I don't know what the name of the book is, but the Blu-ray set of films is called From Hollywood to Heaven. And the backstory on that is my mom and dad were in vaudeville. My dad was an MC. My mother was, uh, she worked with uh, big, oh, there's my dog. Uh, she worked with big time people like Bob Hope and uh, Ginger Rogers and a, a variety of people over the years. And they did vaudeville. That's how they met. They met and they were married six weeks later. And not to say they didn't have their issues, but they, you know, it survived you know, up until uh, my dad passed in 1981. But vaudeville led them to uh, go out and do oh, road shows. And the road shows were very fun and lucrative and the whole nine yards, but you had to deal with all the people who were saying, I need this, I want this, my costume's broken. And they said, boy, it would be wonderful if we could have a way to do this and yet not have to deal with all the people all the time, one night stands and that type of thing. So that eventually, not from one day to the next, led them to become involved in the movies uh, in Hollywood. And my dad, yes, he made, a, a, look him up on IMDb is the best way. I can't quote the movies. He was a contract director for a producer by the name of Bob, Bob Lippard. He made all the Lash LaRue films and a whole bunch of others. Oh my gosh. But then that eventually led us to uh, move to Nashville and some you know, starts and stops along the way. Wow, so did they write and direct the films? Well, it would depend on which film we're talking about. When he was a contract director, sometimes he was handed a script and then he would have to direct that particular show as the script was. But when we moved into our own films, like the Lash LaRue films, uh, well, that wasn't, that was Halco, Halk, Ormond and White, and then CEO for company. Uh, I, he did some of the writing. Uh, some of them was done by a, another gentleman named Paul Peel. Uh, some of the Lash LaRue films you can find up on YouTube, so you can look at the credits. I can't think of them right now. But then when we moved into our own films, which is From Hollywood to Heaven, yeah, he did his own writing. Uh, I, can, I can picture him right now mentally down in the basement, you know, typing along and coming up with an idea. Sometimes I'd, I'd go down and chip in an idea, but mostly it was him. Wow. And, of course, my mom. She, she would give a, a thought there. Oh, da she'd call him Daddy. Uh, you, you, what do you think about doing this or that? And they'd say, well, not, you know, sometimes it was a heated exchange, but uh, <laughs> often they'd, they'd end up with something which was uh, much more beneficial than had it just been him or her. That's amazing. So what's it like to grow up with parents who are busy in the film industry? Like, did it just seem normal to you? Did you realize how special this was? No, I I, I, re, I realize it now more than I did then because then you're, it's like being in the eye of a hurricane. Uh, you can stand there and look up and see the stars and yet all around you is the hecticness and the storms and the, the wind and everything. But no, when you're in the middle of it, you really don't think about uh, anything. It's just, you know, your life, your mom and dad. Uh, you know, I still had to get up and go to school. Every now and then I'd get to go out on the sets uh, and we uh, periodically I would take off from school in order to you know go maybe be in the movie or something like that but no they were just my mom and dad oh my gosh and you said your parents met and were married six weeks 
later. What was it? A film that brought them together? No, no, it was vaudeville. Uh, okay. What happened is, uh, my mother, if you went back in time, she was the headliner. My dad was underneath her. He was the MC, and he was on the show that was leaving town that day, and she was in the show that was coming to town the next day, and she sat in the audience with just, it was a dress rehearsal, so she sat in the audience, and she watched him up on stage, and she said to the guy next to her, I think his name may have been um, Schooler, I'm not sure about that, uh, he said, you see that guy up there? Pointing at my dad. She says, I'm going to marry him, and I don't know everything that transpired from that point to the next, but six weeks later, they were married. And, I uh, love it. Then, you know, went on from there. And I remember my, well, I don't remember. I remember my mom saying to, to my, my grandmother saying to my mom, this is my mom telling me the story, that mm -hmm. get, tell the boy to go out and get a job because she was an Italian mama. <laughs> and my mom said, no, 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 we want to do our own thing. And, you know, they, their temperament, although heated at times, was very, uh, very much, let's create something, let's do something together, let's do something that will live on. I don't want you, you know, just punching a time clock. Not to say that he didn't occasionally do that. Actually, he sold uh, Singer sewing machines for a while when, he was, when they were just married. But, oh, you know, wow. that wasn't to be their future, fortunately, yeah. or I could be a seamstress now. Yeah, you could. <laughs> going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll have more from our guest Tim as he talks about his mom and her vivaciousness on and off camera. Are you utilizing your email list? Do you know that with the right message you can convert sales and grow your business with an effective email messaging system? If you would like to know how to grow your business, build a connection with your clients, please go to girlbosscopywriter.com to set up a free 30-minute consultation and find out how Girlboss Copywriter can enhance your business. The goal for any business is to grow and reach a new level. Get there faster by being an authority in your industry with a video docu-series. Using video, you can showcase you, your business, your staff, products, your services, and your why. Building relationships is key, and a high-quality video can give existing and potential clients a way to get to know you. It also allows you to build a connection that results in increased sales. If you'd like to know more about how you can enhance your business with video, contact GirlBossProductions.com today. Welcome back to Journey to the Rise. We continue our conversation with Tim, and he shares how the book by Jimmy McDonald is showcasing his family's legacy in the film industry. And so your mom, June, was a vaudeville actress. Did she talk about that experience with you? Oh, gosh, Lucretia, she talked about it my entire life. Uh, and as I mentioned, the book coming out is much of it's in her voice. So you'll get to, w w when you look into the book, I don't think I could do justice to it, but she was always a comedian. She was always a performer. Uh, as my, as uh, Andy Van Roon said, she was always on. The dimmer was always up to 100%. She was never down. I mean, w w was she and I, she might have had 
days when she was not as effervescent as she could be, but when other people were around, she was always the entertainer. But as far as did she talk about the vaudeville days, yeah, but I can't bring a specific element to mind because there was so much. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of your questions I know is going to be, did she manage the Three Stooges? Yeah. And yet my mom and dad, well, they did not manage the TV shows, which is what made the Three Stooges famous. But when the TV shows died or became diminished, uh, my dad and Mo Howard, I, I remember meeting o Mo Howard on, um, not Hollywood Boulevard, but where the Capitol Records building is, you know, the building out there, it looks like a series of records going up. It's on, do you, can you picture what I'm talking mm -hmm, about? Mm -hmm. Most people can. It's, uh, <laughs> it looks like flying saucers, one on top of another on top, and it represents records. I remember leaving the entree cafeteria, and there was Mo Howard and my dad, and he were talking. But what they did was they, my dad and mom had a series of contacts throughout the South, and they knew these contacts, which were the head of the theaters, they knew that they put on a good show. So when my mom would contact them and say, hey, would you like us to bring the Three Stooges to town uh, and, and put on a show? They said, oh, of course. And they did, so my mom and dad coordinated that, brought the Three Stooges there. They did all their crazy stuff, which I, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you, but uh, picture one of their movies, but live. And then the way the money was made, I mean, they might have charged 50 cents to get in, who knows. But the way the money was made was afterwards in the lobby, they said, have your picture made with the Three Stooges. And they did, and then they would send it to them, COD, and uh, a great deal of cash was uh, gleamed by doing that. I don't know how much, but uh, it was a hassle because you had to you know, fill out everything and send it to them. And, some people wouldn't pick it up, but most people did, and they send in the check and then uh, or money order, and then they split that up amongst them. That's so, really yep, smart of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't get to talk to Mo Howard. I mean, there he was, and my dad talking to him, but I was just a little kid. Uh, how old would I have been? Uh, seven, maybe something like that. I'm not sure exactly. Wow. Grab a sip of water. But yeah, of course, absolutely. <laughs> Now, you ended up being in some of your dad's films. Did you want to be an actor? You mean, did I want to be a professional actor, or did I want to be an actor in my dad's films? Both. Ooh. Well, I, no, I, I don't think I ever wanted to be an actor like in Hollywood. There were times when I would see, the I would be at a drive-in theater, uh, and the coming attractions would be uh, Frankie, uh, what was her, Annette Funicello, and... Uh, Frankie, I can't think of his name, but they'd put on the beach beach blanket bingo and all that, and I thought to myself, if I was out in Hollywood, I could probably be in some of those. But beyond those childish thoughts, no, not really. I, I enjoyed more being behind the scenes, but I did enjoy uh, being in front of the camera for my dad's films. And uh, why did he use me? Well, besides the fact that I was his son, I worked cheap. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a bonus. <laughs> That's always a bonus. And of course, we weren't making, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we weren't making SAG, meaning Screen Actors Guild film. You know, we were making independent films, and so, you know, wherever we could get actors and whoever he could get at the best price, uh, it was, a, you know, very much a team effort. But when they needed a young boy, uh, the first one I was in 
was White Lightning Road. I was probably 12 years old. Actually, I was in the eighth grade. So what would that make me? Eight, nine, 12, 13, 12, 13, in that vicinity. And that's when I took off from school, Acadia Baptist Academy in Louisiana, which is where they were boarding me at the time while they went off and did what they had to do. But then they took me out of school for, I don't know, a month, took me to location in um, Cummings, Georgia, uh, which is where we shot the bulk of it. And uh, the backstory on this is this is what eventually led us to Nashville, which I can tell now or, or Yeah, later. please. That'd be, that'd be great. Uh, well, as I said, I did live in Hollywood, but then when my mom and dad uh, left Hollywood for a variety of reasons, uh, they were estranged for a while and they came back together. But uh, the movie, White Lightning Road, kind of brought them back together in Georgia, but then they were looking for a place to uh, edit the picture. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about editing, per se. well, not today, but back in the 70s, let's say, 60s and 70s, it was very expensive to rent an editing machine or room or whatever. Uh, and so to go back to Hollywood uh, from an independent film standpoint would have been very expensive. But a friend of theirs by the name of Smiley Wilson, who was uh, one of, if not the original manager of Loretta Lynn, uh, and they knew him, uh, they knew my mom and dad from Vaudeville, he said, well, come on up to Nashville. Uh, you know, we got a, a film facility here called Trafco, which is the Television, Radio, and Film Commission of the Methodist Church. Today it's been changed, still same company, but UMC, United Methodist Communications. But they had um, a very inexpensive editing room. Instead of 125 a day, it was 125 a week. So my dad oh. says, oh, wow, this is great. So he went to Nashville, edited the movie, met people, hung out with Smiley and Kitty, uh, and um, Rita and Earl, who are actually in the movie, Rita and Earl Sinks, uh, and then later uh, we decided, this is a pretty good city, uh, why don't we just move here? So then, and I was ready to get out of Acadia Baptist Academy, which was a boarding school uh, slash Baptist. We went to church forever, it seemed like. Um, but then that brought us to Nashville, and my dad was then finishing up the movie, and we made several movies here, uh, White Lightning Road, uh, Girl from the Back of Row, The Exotic Ones, which was retitled by me to Monster and Stripper. And then, uh, of course, we had the airplane accident, which uh, I believe you mentioned you'd like to know more about. And that, yeah. that took us into uh, Christian films. Now, if Take I remember correctly, I saw an article that was titled Music City's First Family in Film. How does that feel? That's That's very historic. And it's really impressive. Well, it, it feels pretty cool. It, it, it feels pretty cool now to look at that story. Uh, by the way, if you go up to uh, the Nashville scene, which is still online, I can't, think, I, I can't think of the search term, but if you search for Ormond on there, uh, you can see a, uh, a, an in-depth article that Jim Ridley, who was a fantastic author, uh, wrote about us. But now it's pretty fantastic to think the first family film. Of course, the book coming out is going to do a lot to um, sustain our reputation through the years, through the generations, because now Nashville is so cosmopolitan, there's plenty of people here making movies. But back in the 60s, there was no one here making movies uh, except us and one gentleman by the name of Victor Lewis. 
and that, who was a friend of my dad's. So yeah, we were indeed the first family of film, but um, we did not have any particular agenda at the time, but my dad had the ears of the town. I can remember uh, hanging out with Ralph Emery uh, doing a late night radio talk show. Well, my dad was hanging out. I was just there uh, with Johnny Cash and Ralph Emery talking and you know, we were sitting there just listening. And I didn't even realize who Johnny Cash was. He was just a guy talking to the microphone. Um, and my dad attempted, I, I can't sing then, I can't sing now, uh, I can carry a tune in a bucket. But <laughs> had I been able to sing, uh, my dad got me the ear of a music producer because they thought, well, hey, if I could sing a song and be in the movies, then that would really make it into something special. Unfortunately, as I said, I really couldn't sing, but I do sing uh, to a monster by the name of Sleepy Lavif, who uh, look him, he's passed now, but he was the king of rockabilly for many years, so he played the part of the monster because he was a great big tall guy, 6'6", six, six, I think like that, and uh, so you'll see, you'll see the, uh, me singing to the monster in uh, the exotic ones and Monster and the Stripper, and my ego was such that I hated the song as I was growing up. Now I don't care. But I cut the song down as short as I could in when I retitled the movie to Monster and the Stripper. But they found an original. When I say they, I mean um, Nicholas Winding Refn, Jimmy McDonough, and uh, Peter, whose name I can't, uh, uh, whose name escapes me. He's the archivist. And they found a copy of the original film with my entire song in there. And I said, oh no, I'm going to have to listen to the whole thing again. You know, now it's pretty cool. Back then I thought, oh God, if I could just get rid of this. Oh, <laughs> I would love to see that and be able to hear that section well, of where you, you sang. <laughs> and films can be oh, very yeah. stressful to produce. What experiences have you had with difficult shoots and what kind of extraordinary actions have you need to take to make things work? Oh, gracious, Lucretia. Well, if you remember, and you know, that when we first, I don't think this is when we first met, but one of the times when I first got to know you was I showed up at Jody's house. Jody is a friend of both Lucretia's and mine. And Jody says, I'm going over to the church to help Lucretia do a shoot. You want to come? And all of a sudden we went to your church and we're setting up cameras and lights and Christmas trees and people. And there's so much activity that goes on in a film set. When you're doing a, uh, a book, let's just say, for instance, you can pretty much close off the world and do it yourself. But when you're doing a movie, a small movie like we did, or a big extravaganza, matter of fact, next time you see a movie in the theater, stay for the credits and see how many people are involved. It even amazes me how many people have to put their two cents or dollars into a film to make it become a reality. Um, but to tell you a specific time, okay, I'll tell you one. It's in The Second Coming, which is one of our Christian films, and we're illustrating the scene of King Nebuchadnezzar when he has this dream, which Daniel later interprets, of a statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a, uh, legs of iron uh, and feet of bronze, whatever. And, I, and he said, and I saw it in the dream, it's scattered to the four winds. Well, I had to think, how am I going to illustrate this visually? I couldn't just do a drawing. CGI didn't exist when I did that film. So we had a sculptor actually construct the front half 
of the statue, and he was going to do three of them so we could do multiple takes. He only did one, and I had to pull that out of him. His name was Michael. Don't remember his last name. It'd be in the credits. But he was a very gifted artist. But um, when it was done, and I said, okay, is it done? He said, yeah, here it is. I mean, this went on for two, three months, and I had to shoot the scene. I kept saying, when is it done? When is it done? I pressured him, but he finally got it done. And there's the finished statue in three parts, the, the head, the chest, and the legs. And the, he made me an extra set of feet, which uh, <laughs> I needed. And so Eddie King and I, who was a, who's gone now, but a very good friend, we had a lot of escapades together. We drove out to a place with the statue late in the day, planning to spend the night, get the statue ready to blow up, literally, with dynamite. No special effects team, Eddie and me. We got the dynamite from our secretary, Marie Teeter, and filled the statue with dynamite up here and then in the middle and in the leg so I could go boom, boom, boom. And we had it all rigged, and the cameraman, Julian Cole, showed up at the dawn. Eddie and I had been there all night carefully unwrapping dynamite, literally dynamite, unwrapping it, and we're looking at dynamite and then putting it into the statue and pasting it in there with plaster of Paris, running the blasting caps out to wires, being as careful as we could, but also with the thought in mind, if something went wrong, we could blow ourselves to kingdom come. Fortunately, nothing did, but it almost did. So now the cameraman shows up at the dawn the next morning, the statue is set up, and I should say, as we started to set up the statue, forgetting the dynamite, that's all rigged, but now we have to place the feet, then the chest, and the head, one on top of the other, and the feet and the uh, chest worked, but when we got ready to put the head up here, the center part started to collapse, and uh, oh my God, this could be the end of our shoot, we don't even get the shot. Well, Eddie thought, well, if we could rig something as a support, so we, and we didn't have anything with us, we looked around and we found a stick, and if you watch oh, the film carefully, <laughs> you'll see the statue explode and then just behind just it, as you got to the good part falling out of frame uh, okay we it, it i lost you just as you said did i drop out um it was falling apart and eddie it was uh and eddie found the stick and we placed it into the proper spot to support the statue and we kept it up and now the cameraman shows up at dawn julian cole and we had to rent a special camera called a photonic that uh, you, you may or may not know that a film camera normally runs at 24 frames a second. Well, this one ran at 600 frames per second. Special camera. And I remember Julian... Oh, I got to backtrack. So when I ran the wires out to the triggering device, I got a shock before I hooked it up. And I thought, if I got a shock and then it went through the wire, the statue would explode prematurely and we wouldn't get the shot so this is at the last minute i had to get rid of the triggering device strip the wire and up here in front of me were three wires and that triggered all three dynamite charges and i had the hot wire and i waited for julian to go all right speed and you heard the camera go uh, 600 frames per second and then i had to go Boom, boom, boom. And I looked up and the statue was gone. It happened that quickly. And it wasn't until I saw the dailies, 
which is you know the preview of what you just shot because it wasn't video uh, you couldn't just click rewind and see what you did this was film we got it develop it bring it back it was like two days later before I saw the shot but it was beautiful the statue just kind of blows up and scatters into the four winds and uh, oh and the extra feet on the bottom was it's supposed to be a rock that comes in and smotes the beast upon the feet and then it scatters into the four winds so the way we did that was I stood up on a ladder and I threw in this big lava stone which is not heavy but it looks great and we had one set of feet which was about the size of a you know a large man's feet maybe double so I had to sh throw the rock down on the feet and then we cut the camera to the full shot of it blowing up so I think that's an example of having to uh, you know swing with the punches and solve a problem at the last minute but the, you know some somebody watching this will buy the book and actually see the movie and actually uh, you know watch it explode and now you know the backstory that's amazing and I, I am one who sits in the theater and watches all the credits. I'm usually 99, if not 100% of the time, the only one still sitting there and the staff is usually cleaning. But I love seeing all the people. It takes so many people to make what you just watched in an hour and a half, two hours happen. And it's over a course of usually months, okay. if not a couple of years. So I love that oh, you have yeah. that appreciation as well. Oh, I definitely do. I mean, even on our limited scale, it would take us a year from the time we had the script. Well, this was assuming we had the money, uh, but it would take us about a year to shoot the film and then edit it and go into pre-production, add the music, do all the color timing, make the inner negative. You know, everything. Today, anybody can get on YouTube and do a, a credible film, you know, if they use their intelligence and the right equipment not their intelligence, but their ingenuity and the right equipment. Anybody can do it. You can launch a, a YouTube channel today, and if you have the right subject matter, you can be, you know, a star. Uh, you know, back then it was much more difficult to create a film, but uh, I still, I appreciate YouTube. I mean, I use it. Oh, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the plane crash. Um, how did that affect your family? Like, what, what happened? Like, who was flying it? And... And you said that led to make making Christian religious movies. What was that experience? Well, uh, that's a. I, I'm not going to go into the great details of the of the plane crash, but I'll just tell you the punchline. Any time that you look death in the face, uh, it has to change you some way. I mean, that's just inevitable. In our instance, one of my great passions, which I have not been able to enjoy since I knew you and because of my limited vision now, but was flying. I, I was a, a commercial flight instructor, a commercial and a instrument rated and flight instructor back in my uh, teens and my 20s and I guess into my 30s. I loved it, but we had an airplane uh, and you'll see it, you'll see a picture of the crash in the book, but basically one morning we went out and we were on our way to Louisville to the premiere of one of our older films a girl from the back of row. We took off on a bright, clear, uh, cold morning, and what we did not realize was that the oil was being pumped out the bottom of the engine, and we oh, could not no. see it. We did our proper run-up 
all the gauges said everything was in the green. And once again, my dad was a command pilot in the Air Force. So between him and I, my mom didn't love flying as much. She was in the back. But we ate it up. I, every day I still watch a flying video on YouTube. But anyway, all the, we did our, and I'm saying this for the pilots, we did our run-up, we did our free flight, we checked the gauges, everything was in the green, but the pressure gauge was reading before the oil was being pumped out, so we weren't seeing an indication of the oil going out in the ground. So we called the National Towers, says 5,000 Bravo ready for takeoff, uh, to right, which was the name of the runway, uh, which stands for 20 degrees, and they said 5,000 Bravo cleared for takeoff, we taxied out of the runway, gave it full power, started our climb, and then the uh, engine, the RPMs dropped off. But that didn't mean anything immediately. Um, we reached up and tweaked the prop so that the RPMs would increase, but that didn't seem to solve the problem. And then all of a sudden, boom, the prop just stopped, went, boom, just stopped. And it's so silent. Um, now, there is an airplane adage that you're only supposed to uh, turn back towards the airport when you reach a certain altitude, otherwise you could stall and go into the ground. Well, we were high enough to make that turn, at, you know, my dad, and then I called the airport. I can remember it as clear as uh, it was yesterday. I said, uh, Nashville Tower, 5,000 Bravo, Mayday, Mayday, and um, they basically said, the first thing they said was, and I don't remember the name of the flight, but I remember it visually. They so this number I'm making up is just off the top of my head. But the first Nashville Tower, 5,000 Bravo, Mayday, Mayday, and the tower immediately said, American 581, go around. And this was a, a American uh, 727 on short final, gave it the power and go it around. And then he said, 5,000 Bravo, clear to land any runway, meaning the airport is yours. But we did not make it to the oh. airport. We crashed in a field just missing a set of high tension wires. Uh, if you went out there today and you stood at the main airport, uh, main post office, and looked towards the airport, you can go out there today and see this. Right in front of you now, there's shopping centers, and there, there'd be no way we'd survive. But back then, it was a farm with cows, uh, fences, and we landed hard. Uh, and my, my, my dad's ability, he, he decided to land with the wheels up on purpose because had we landed with the wheels down and the nose wheel collapsed, we would have flipped. But we landed with the wheels up and wham, hit the ground. What I didn't know at the moment was it fractured my mom and dad's back. Didn't do anything to me. I was like 17 at the time. You know, it was rubber for bones. But what, what we did was we, we missed the cows. Now, I don't know if that was... God's grace or my dad's <laughs> skill or both, but we started to twist to the right and our tail hit a fence post and severed it. And what, it also tore the airplane in half, uh, right like a can, right behind where my mother was sitting. And then the second fence post got pushed over and the third fence post stopped us. And then I immediately, uh, we had already opened the door so it wouldn't get pinned when we collapsed, when we crashed. But uh, so I threw open the door, pulled my mom and dad to safety uh, because we were afraid the airplane could, you know, burst into fire. Uh, it didn't. Uh, my dog is here saying, throw the ball. So <laughs> anyway, but uh, I, I ran to get help. 
I called the tower. I said, hey, that was us. We just crashed. Send, send help. And they said, we already have. I ran back, and there was ambulances and everyone there pulling. My, my mom and dad were away from the film, uh, the, the plane, laying on their backs because their, their, their vertebrae were uh, you know, hurt, broken, fractured, whatever. And they put them in the ambulance, took them to the hospital, and they said, what about you? Uh, talking to me, I said, I'm fine. Well, do you want to ride along? So I rode along. Never was scared until later in the day. They were in the hospital, and I went then back to the airplane you know, some hours later to look at what we had survived, and we had indeed survived what could have very easily killed all three of us. And my mother would later tell me she saw an angel sitting on the wing as we came in. Uh, I did not see the angel, but my mom says she did. Of course, our focus was in front of us. What can we do to survive? What's wrong with the engine? Our focus was ahead of us. My mother was thinking to herself, well, if we have to go out, at least we're together because we were a very close family. Yeah. But maybe there was an angel on the wing. But then that leads into the Christian films. Now, not the next day or even the next month, but sometime soon in the future, my dad was approached by a man by the name of Monty Stanfield, who was a friend of a man by the name of Estes Perkle, and they said, um, we want to do a movie, and uh, would you be interested in helping? And uh, of course, you know, with money in the whole nine yards. Not much money, though. Uh, and my dad had to feel oh. at the time, and I came <coughs> to the realization later. We lost your audio. Maybe this is God saying, let uh, me know when you can hear me. We should use our talents for, you know, his glory as opposed to making Monster in the Strip or all that Can you hear me stuff. okay? So that led us to making a series of Christian films, now? which uh, some we made with Estes Perkle uh, in New Albany, well, Mississippi. Now? Some we made on our own, but it was... Um, I'm sure it will come back. There you are. You what horses do. Oh, there you oh, are. We lose. lost you for a second again. Okay. okay so uh, it was... At? Yeah, it was just where you were talking about um, the person, I'm trying to remember the person's name, who approached you, and you said something about um, the money. Yeah, um, okay, I got it from that. Uh, okay. So my dad got a call from a man by the name of Monty Stanfield. Actually, Monty Stanfield, back in those days, Estes Perkle, Monty Stanfield, and a host of other preachers would go on the radio and, and preach. Uh, you can still tune to the AM stations and hear preachers preaching, but way back then it was filled. Well, one of these people was Monty Stanfield, and he met the disc jockey whose name escapes me. Um, I can picture him, but I can't think of the name. And he knew my dad back in the Hollywood days when they were making The Last Ruth, and the guy said, do you know anyone who uh, knows how to make a movie? Because I'd like to turn this preachment into a movie. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. His name's Ron Orman. Uh, that led to a phone call from Monty Stanfield. My dad, Monty Stanfield, and Estes Perkle meeting at the airport in Dallas, Texas, and having a conversation about making this film. And so when he came back, he said, hey, maybe we should make this. Maybe this is God speaking to us, saying we should use our talents for good and not just like monster and stripper and things like that. I did not come to that realization at that moment. I was happy just to make a film, but my dad, uh, and maybe it was the fact that they were hurt and I wasn't. And by the way, my dad said to me earlier, he said, get back on the horse, meaning get back in the airplane and go fly 
because you don't want to be scared now because we both love flying even though we had a crash and while they were in the hospital indeed i went back and rented a plane and you know flew around a little bit came in for a landing and he said you may come in high you may be a little ground shy and indeed i did and i went around did another approach and then came in and did a, a safe landing and kind of got over my fear and then indeed got back on the horse or got back in the plane and i did it again but that led to a series of films uh if Footman tell you what will horses do, The Burning Hell, The Believer's Heaven, those were for um, Estes Perkle in New Albany, Mississippi. Then we went on to make uh, The Grim Reaper, um, the second well, the second coming I made after my dad was dead. Uh, this, the Grim Reaper, The Land Where Jesus Walked, uh, one with John Rice at Coba Hall, which escapes me, and then 39 Stripes, which was the story of a man in prison by the name of Ed Martin, uh, and by the way, we flew to the premiere, and so we got over that fear of flying. Uh, and then um, after my dad passed, uh, I was in the midst of writing a script while he was sick called The Second Coming, and then we went on to produce that, and then Sacred Symbol, and then eventually that led to, uh, you know, meeting you and Jody and other people while I made uh, commercials and music videos and, you know, a whole variety of things like that. So that's kind of, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's amazing. That's, that was brilliant advice that your dad gave you. Clearly it sounds like he was a very experienced pilot and he even knew to the detail of what you would experience coming in after a situation like that. He was a, a very good dad, a very good pilot, and um, we had a lot of fun together. Not to say we didn't have our arguments, we of course did. Any son and father would, but overall, uh, here's my dog again. <laughs> he hears he hears me talking on here and says, "Why aren't you paying attention to me?" Dogs are dogs and cats. Uh, yeah, and anyway, my dad was a. Uh, what uh, what interests me concerning my dad and flying was Jimmy McDonough, the author of the book. Recently, as uh, well, I don't know when this will air, but. Recently, from this moment, he sent me a picture. He says, can you identify the airplane in this picture? And it was my dad, probably in his 20s, uh, standing next to his plane in air coop uh, at the time. And I, where Jimmy got this picture, I don't know. He found pictures, which are in the book, which I've never even seen. And this was one of them, my dad, uh, as a very young man. But yeah, he, he was a command pilot in the Air Force. He loved flying. Uh, he went away from flying for, I guess, about 20 years, and then uh, he was reintroduced to flying at the National Flying Service. We rented a Cherokee 140. Uh, he got checked out in it, and we flew from Nashville to Little Rock for the, the premiere of, I believe, White Lightning Road, and that's what kind of, you know, gave me my first taste of private flying, and then I said, I said, I, did, I can't sing, I can't play the guitar, but boy, do I love to, to fly. And when I went into the Marine Corps later, I, I was an air traffic controller, and I breezed through my classes because, not because I'm brilliant, but because I already knew it. It was just the other side of the coin. Uh, on this side of the coin was flying. On that side of the coin is air traffic control. But the rules are the same. So when I'd go sit in the class and the guys would say, oh, you need to learn this and you need to know these rules, I thought to myself, I didn't tell them, of course, I already know this stuff. So I graduated first in the class, uh, but that's because I already knew it. Um, 
I don't want to say you know I was a genius. I wasn't. I'm not. But uh, I, I I did ace that particular course. That's amazing. How long were you in the Marines? Excuse me, I take a drink water. Well, let me be totally transparent here. When the Vietnam War was hitting, I didn't want to go to Vietnam, but I didn't want to go to Canada either. Uh, I wanted to serve my country, but I wanted to do it in a way which was not going to have me, you know, flying a uh, being in the infantry or flying a helicopter in Nam. So I joined the Marine Corps um, Reserves. Uh, a good friend of my dad, my dad, my dad said of him. He's the best writer I know. His name was Jack Lewis, who was a major in the Marine Corps, but my dad knew him as a, a screen uh, screenplay editor. And uh, I know his one book that I have read called Tell It to the Marines. We became friends, and he was a friend of the family, and I thought, well, you know, the Marines wasn't too bad for, for Jack Lewis, so maybe it won't be too bad for me. So I went to the uh, Nashville uh, Reserve Unit, and they were uh, truck driving... Oh, shucks. You okay? Okay, I'll back up. You all right? So I went to the Nashville unit. Am I here? Mm-hmm. Yep, I got you. So I went to the Nashville unit, which was a transportation unit, and nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I went to Memphis, Millington, and that was where the air wing was, and I took my entrance exams and such there, signed up to, uh, and I could choose my specialty. And I still remember the MOS number 6711, which was an air traffic controller. So um, how long was I in? Well, active duty, I was only in nine months. But then the reserves, you know, goes on for six years, uh, once a month and two weeks in the summertime. Wow. Well, thank but you for your fun. service. I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, thank you. If I had it to do over again, uh, I would have stayed in for a longer period uh, because one of the things you get if you graduate top in your class is a promotion and your choice of duty stations. So at the time, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking ahead, but had I stayed in, I could have gotten a lot more benefits and I could have gone to Iwakuni, Japan. So uh, that would have been an experience. Yeah, absolutely. And with your film, you ended up traveling, if I remember correctly, to the Middle East. You went out west to produce and make films. What were those experiences like for you? Oh, well, lots of experiences there. Uh, when we, the first trip to the Holy Land, my dad made it his own. That was with Estes Perkle to kind of scout out and figure out how to do it. The second trip to the Holy Land, I went along with cameras. And my most memorable experience was climbing Mount Sinai. And this was the, I'm not saying this is where Moses was and he received the Ten Commandments, but I am saying historically this is where he was. And at the base of the mountain was Santa Catarina Monastery, which you can still go look up on the net. Of course, it's modernized now. This was back in the 70s. And it was just, it was like walking into history, like walking through a time warp and you're seeing like a medieval castle. It was kind of that thing, it was more like a fortress, but it was run by Greek Orthodox church uh, priests. And I remember vividly the skull room, and it was a room, and once again, you can look this up on Google Images, and you'll see this room full of skulls, you know, bleached and cleaned, but 
over the years, over the centuries, the Greek Orthodox priests had stored the skulls there so that they would be remembered or they'd be there for the resurrection or, you know, whatever. I don't know the reasoning, but we spent the night there, and on one, before it got dark, myself, Estes Perkle, and a third person, I think his name was uh, um, Randy Robbins, climbed Mount Sinai. When I say climbed, I don't mean with pitons and ropes. There was a path, but still it was a rugged path, and we had a limited amount of time, so we climbed up to the top of Mount Sinai. That was a monumental experience, but we didn't have any time to appreciate it, so we had to quickly go down the, the uh, to get back in because they closed the monastery gates at sundown, and if you weren't in, you'd be locked out. So we had to race back down the mountain, and it was kind of a drizzly rain. We had to worry about that. Now, the next time I went to the Holy Land, I got to go three times or four times, I have to think. But on the third trip, a group of us went to Mount Sinai uh, again. This was so we could get some establishing shots of people in the, uh, the desert, not at the monastery, but out in the Mount Sinai area. And then I think three or four or five of us once again climbed the mountain. But this time, we had planned ahead and we were going to spend the night inside of a little prayer hut, which was on top of Mount Sinai, and we did. We had a prayer meeting. Now, I was not necessarily a Christian at the time. I was much closer to a hippie than I would be a Christian, but during this prayer meeting and a thunderstorm and everyone, I, I, you know, I really felt God, you know, come into me. It was, a, And I don't know if it was the emotion or the prayers but or the location. I have no idea of those things. But I do know it was a very much a religious experience. Wow, that's and amazing. There's a million other, there's a bunch of other stories, but yeah. you know, that's the most memorable one. That's incredible. As far as going out west, uh, that was with Pete Rice. He's on Facebook. Uh, P-R-A-Y, Pete Rice and you, Evangelist Pete Rice. He wanted to, his desire was to create a wild... I don't know if you remember, but way back then in the 70s, there was a thing called the ABC Wide World of Sports. And they had the opening montage was a whole bunch of little small uh, blocks of people doing something, rafting or skiing or jumping or climbing or racing or catapulting or doing whatever. All these little images in split screens, picture in a picture, but you know maybe 10 or 12 of them going on at the same moment. And Pete says, I'd like to do something like that uh, to kind of, because his desire was to get young people saying, well, if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you have to be, you know, sit in a chair. You can actually get out in the world and experience it. And Pete wanted to do that for people. And so the very first time we filmed was him going down the Okoe River. And we had a guide and we had a canoe. My dad and I were up on the side. I've since been down the Okoe River several times because I loved it, but I was in a raft. He was in a canoe. He'd never been in a canoe before, or at least he was not experienced. So he was in the front. The guide was in the back, supposedly an expert in uh, canoeing down the Okoe. Turns out he was not. The canoe flipped. Pete got pushed up against a bridge embankment, almost drowned. I remember uh, there wasn't anything I could do. I couldn't jump in and save him. 
uh, but then he got washed past the embankment to the other side of the, uh, it crawled up on the shore, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what went on? And I raced across the bridge to find Pete, and he was panting, but you know he was alive, and he went on to have a, a great worldwide ministry. Matter of fact, he once asked me if I'd like to come to work for him. I said, no, Pete, I don't think that's in my life. I said, but if you ever have a project, I'm you know happy to work with you on it. And uh, he invited me to go with him to Mexico at one point, but my mom was ill at the time and I couldn't. But wow. yeah, lots of adventures. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> now, when you were flying, did you ever use the planes to get shots for your films? Uh, only once, but uh, not exactly in the uh, way you're asking. When I, uh, I, I began to work for a man by the name of Julian Cole, and uh, he was the king of commercials before video hit. Uh, matter of fact, if you go on YouTube and type in uh, American Ace commercials, some of the early ones, Julian uh, and Tennessee, Tennessee trash going down the highway, Tennessee trash, you might have heard of that one. Well, they, there's been two of them. The early one was with Irv Kane. So I worked with Julian on that and the American Ace. You know, if I don't get American Ace, I'm going back to bed uh, and several others. But in one particular uh, video we were doing, it was about, um, it wasn't a commercial, it was a documentary about Real Foot Lake and erosion and things like that. And Julian wanted to get a um, aerial shot. Well, we couldn't afford a helicopter, not to mention it was Julian, me, and the two producers. Uh, so that was four of us getting that in a helicopter and getting the shot. I was not going to work. So we rented a plane, which a uh, 210, one that uh, it was a high wing, Cessna 210, and the uh, from Cornelia Fort Airport. So I went and got checked out. Uh, when I say checked out, you got to fly with an instructor so you can prove that you can fly before they'll rent your plane, which is understandable. But on the way to Real Foot Lake, uh, he said, oh, there, uh, that, I don't know where we were, but he just pointed down. He said, that's a good illustration. So I began to... So I began to do a, uh, a slow, shallow right-hand turn, and he opened the window, which we had rigged ahead of time. I mean, they won't really open unless you take out a screw, which we'd taken out. And we moved it up against the top of the wing, and then he, you know, still in his seatbelt and everything, but he looked out and got that particular shot. And then once he got it, then we went on to Real Foot Lake, landed the plane. I remember him saying, nice landing. Um, of course, if you're a pilot, you always want to say, hey, I made a greaser. The plane goes, eat, eat, which means you made a great uh, a great landing. And then we went ahead and shot there at Realford Lake. Uh, you know, got back in the plane and headed home. So it was uh, that's the only time we actually did w when I was flying. I mean, I've done other aerial shots in helicopters, but that's the only time I was personally flying uh, that we did one. Wow. Now, you talk about Georgette Dante being a big sister to you. Where did you two meet, and what is she like? Well, um, besides the book that um, is coming out about the Ormans, I think that a book is coming out about Georgette at some point in the future. Georgette was in our movie, The Exotic Ones slash Monster and the Stripper. Uh, my dad and mom met her in New Orleans, and she was the perfect person because she had a you know a go get him type attitude and although she was labeled professionally as a stripper she was more of an acrobatic dancer uh, she, she's not uh, she's not beautiful she's strong 
and she can like lift people up. And I remember she had flaming tassels and she came to the house and she was just a few years older than me. Um, and my mom and dad auditioned her for the part. And I'm not gonna use the language that uh, she used, but uh, my mom said, well, what would you do if a woman uh, took your man from you? And she said, blankety blankety blank, and I'm not gonna say what she said, but uh, she said some interesting stuff. And we just bonded then and uh, I have kept in touch. Well, I shouldn't say we kept in touch. For about 20 years, I never heard from her. And then by happenstance, she happened to run into somebody who knew me, and uh, we've renewed our conversations. But we haven't seen each other, uh, I don't know, gosh, since the 70s. Uh, but I you know, talked to her on Facebook. Oh, uh, I lost you. She's got a very... Just hang in there. I'll come back. Uh, her her, her catchphrase is hubba hubba. And if you had her on an interview... Can you hear me now? Um, which, what about you know, now? Down the road we might. What about uh, now? Hubba uh, hubba. There anyway, you are. <laughs> Oh, when did that drop out again? Uh, she ran into someone who knew you. Okay. So for about 20 years, maybe even more, I always w wondered about Georgette. When my dad passed in 81, she sent me a little heart-shaped medallion picture of my dad basically saying how much she loved my dad. And then I didn't see her for, oh, yeah, 20 years at least, maybe even longer. Uh, and then she ran into somebody who knew me, and they called me on the phone, and the person, I can't remember his name, said, hey, you're not going to believe who's standing by me. And I said, who? He said, Georgette Dante. And he put her on the phone, and we became, you know, fast friends. And she was like my big sister, because I call her that. Um, and we keep in casual touch. She's now a magician uh, slash entertainer in Las Vegas. And uh, she just went through, she just fell and broke her hip so she's healing from that and you know god bless her and i know jimmy mcdonough is doing something with her there's a great article uh that they did on her which is up on um, nicholas wending reffin's web website called by nwr bynwr.com how you find it once you get up there i don't know but i remember looking at it it's a very in-depth article but she grew up in a carnival her mom uh, her mom was a carny before her, and uh, she was a carny, and it was a, a pretty amazing upbringing. If you go up to her Facebook page, uh, you can find her up there and look through her photos. Uh, she has it all from, from the time she was. She started performing, I think, when she was 12 or 14 and never stopped, and she's probably 75 now. Yeah, I think she just turned 75 like less than a month ago. But she, yeah, she's my big sis, but I still haven't seen her except on Facebook. And because of my vision now, uh, it's doubtful that I can get out there, but I'd love to just go out and say, hey, give her a big hug. And yeah. I'm working on some business things, and if they work out, I'm going to you know, see if I can include her in some particular way. That would be yeah, amazing. She's, she, she's, a, she's a handful. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, Andy Van Roon posted uh, about you, and he stated that you have spent 20 years behind the scenes selflessly working on behalf of Film Nashville, Film Con, the National Film Association, and the community, and it comes from the first independent filmmaking family going back decades. How does that feel to hear such an accolade about you? How does that feel? Like, uh, well, I can, uh, I can put my fingernails on my shirt here and <laughs> shine up my nails. 
it feels good, but uh, it's not quite so clean cut as that. When my mom got uh, sick, uh, I had to find some way to make a living because I could, I, I mean, I chose to take care of her at home. Uh, li literally, I put her in a nursing home for like two days and I, it broke my heart. I don't know what it did to my mom, but I just said, I can't leave her there. So I brought her home and then I took care of her for, you know, the remainder of her life. But I could no longer go out and make films or videos or commercials or whatever. Uh, so I had to find a way to, uh, you know, make money. And I turned to the internet and, you know, like all of us go up to Google and type in how to make money online. Well, eventually that led to an internet conference, internet marketing conference at Opryland Hotel where I went out and I met some people and I learned to make websites and learned to market things on the net and eBay and Amazon and drop shipping and affiliate marketing, the whole nine yards. I became somewhat skilled in that. Andy Van Roon came into my life, became a good friend of mine and my mother's, and then he said, I want to do this uh, uh, website called Film Nashville. Uh, will you help? Actually, I should say the name Film Nashville came from a guy named Ron Coons, but then he dropped out of the picture and Andy and I continued it. We made a uh, website and a community called Film Nashville. It later dissolved, but then we um, created, or rather he created, film-com.com, which is still in existence. It's on the web. Uh, and then Tennessee Entertainment Association, which is basically just Andy keeping people appraised of what's going on. Um, uh, Film National Foundation, uh, Faith in Film, um, and I think there's another one I can't think of right now. But basically, yeah, I mean, it's not that clear cut because I, get, I do get something out of it. Uh, matter of fact, just before this interview, Andy sent me an email and says, hey, could you do this real quick? And of course I did. But I get the, the web hosting out of it, and so I get to put all my dreams and schemes up on the web, and I don't have to pay for it. And uh, believe me, I've got plenty of dreams and schemes. That's <laughs> awesome. I love that. You're also but yeah, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. Good, yeah, which it should. You're also a very talented juggler. How did you get into juggling? Well, that goes back to, well, I was fairly talented at the time. Of course, I can no longer juggle due to my vision. That, well, that's not true. I went out to see Rebel, uh, who, that's Rebel Bailey, uh, who you know very well. I went out to his house, I guess about a year ago, uh, and we, uh, he gave me some clubs. And I wanted to see if I could still do it. And I, I mean, I couldn't do it like I used to, but I did it. How did I get into juggling? I was in Las Vegas with my mom, meeting a man by the name of John Calvert, who's in the Second Coming, who's a world-famous magician. He's passed on now. But go up to YouTube and type in John Calvert, and you'll see uh, who he was. But we were doing a project called Tribute to Houdini, and we were in Vegas to meet with John and to uh, uh, see some performers. Well, we went to a show, a, magi a magic show, and the opening act was a juggler. So after the show, of course, we went backstage because John took us back there to meet the magician and do their, you know, their talk. But I was more interested in meeting the juggler. Uh, and since I was backstage, he was then talking to me like a friend, not just a, you know, a fan from the audience. I said, I've always wanted to learn to juggle. How hard is it? He said, oh, it's easy. You can do it, yada, 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 yada. And he said, of course, he couldn't really talk to me right then because he was doing whatever. But he said, get this book, Juggling for the Complete Klutz. So when I got back to Nashville a few days later, uh, I went to the bookstore, found the book, 
Juggling for the Complete Klutz, which is still a great book, learned how to basically do what's called a jug, which was one hand to the other and a second one over this one, and then eventually you add the third one. Well, I was just getting to that when I just went to, um, what was it called, Fountain Square uh, AMC Theaters, uh, Fountain Square AMC Theaters, and Jody, who I did not know at the time, was out front um, entertaining. He was wearing a peppermint striped coat, white pants, and I believe kind of an old-time 50s straw hat, and his, he had a box full of magic called Jodini, and I walked up and said, hey, I said, I always wanted to learn to juggle, and he whipped out three scarfs, because juggling scarfs, because they float, is supposedly a good way to learn how to juggle. I didn't find it, so I found it more difficult because the wind would grab them. But uh, I said, well, I can already do this. He said, well, why don't you come out to the park on Tuesday? All the jugglers meet there, and then we go out to dinner afterward. So I did, and there was a whole group of eclectic people, you know, Jody and Rebel and Mark Deutschman, who's turned into one of the big real estate moguls in Nashville, and Mike Oviat, and uh, my mom would come, of course, and... Uh, Jody's wife, Carol, and you know, a whole slew of others I can't think of right now. Uh, and I began to juggle with them, and they'd show me tricks. And then, of course, I saw that the big thing was tossing clubs back and forth. And so I had to buy some clubs. Now, that's a graduation from juggling three balls to juggling three clubs. It's not as easy as you think. It took me a while. But then once I got that, then passing clubs becomes the real sport, the real fun the real energizing moments of juggling are passing clubs back and forth between one or more people. And then I had a kid down the street named Pete Wilson. You can find him on YouTube. He's got a, a great podcast. Uh, he walked over, didn't even know him. He just walked over when I was juggling in my front yard. Just, he, said, he said, hey, I've always wanted to learn to juggle. So I taught him to juggle. He quickly got better than me. I worked on five balls for literally two years, literally two years, it took him about two months, and he was already doing it better than me. I said, you rat, you know, but and it, we, we juggled together at uh, Centennial Park and then down at Summer Lights, and we had a great time. I still keep in touch with Pete, uh, you know, off and on, but uh, he used to run a church in Nashville called, uh, well, I don't know what it was called, um, but it was downtown. Uh, it was one of the big churches in Nashville. Then he left the church, and uh, he's, he's now a life coach, and he's doing extraordinary well. And uh, I'm glad for him. But anyway, that's my that's my juggling. That's oh, and amazing. fire club. That's what you saw on on, uh, um, on Facebook. Actually, juggling fire clubs, it's just a moment of fear. Like, well, can I really do this? But if you can do the clubs, you can do the fire clubs. It's not there's, there's no more difficulty uh, involved. You say, well, what if you catch the wrong end? Well, you just let go. <laughs> not a big deal. And if you're really good, once you get, I mean, it's only there for just like a moment. Uh, it's not like you're holding on to it and your hand catches on fire. You're juggling. And then if you, once you get good enough, even if you catch it wrong, you just do an extra twist the next time and you're back to normal. It's like getting out of step when you're marching with a, your squad. You just shuffle step and then you're back. It's not that big of a deal. But it was a lot of fun and everybody thought, wow, you can juggle fire. It's cool. And indeed I could. That's amazing. And it seems like those adventures and the, the friends that you got connected with, it led to all sorts of adventures. Like, I think I saw something about a trip to Atlanta. You mentioned meeting in the parks. Like, you just, it seems like there's a, a really fun community there. 
Well, what's interesting is I'm still friends with many of them. Uh, Jody, Rebel, Carol, Arthur, Jill. Um, well, Matt Kensington is gone. He, got, he was in a car accident. Um, and uh, Frank LeVar. Uh, all those people I met through juggling. And now 30 years later, I'm still friends with them. So it was a great community. Now, some people would come and go. Other people were, and I don't mean in my life. I just mean their lives would take them away from Nashville. Some were Vanderbilt students, and they leave. Some, one was Michael Oviat was a tech writer for Saturn. He moved out west, and then he died from something. But, oh, yeah, the Atlanta, uh, well, I can tell you a quick story about that. But uh, once a year in February on Groundhog's Day, there was a juggling convention in Atlanta. So Jody said, back when I was kind of just getting into it, he said, maybe you want to come with us to Atlanta for the Groundhog Festival. You know, we, we juggle and have a good time, and we have a party that night, and then on Sunday everybody gets out there and juggles and they perform. So I said, oh, sure, of course I will. And, of course, Jody then and now is an entertainer, and he loves to help people. So he was putting on a, uh, so Saturday night, or yeah, I guess Saturday night, there was a room full of people in a theater, and various people would perform. So now it was Jody's turn to perform, and he was doing a skit with puppets, because you probably know he's a puppeteer. He was Snowbird way back when. But anyway, his puppets were, I don't remember everything, but one was about being a babysitter, and the other one was about being the dad, I don't know what was said, but he said something that got all the women in the audience mad at him, and afterwards they came up and <laughs> and I filmed most of it with a camera, but unfortunately I cut it off then because it just got, it got too weird and I said, I shouldn't be taping this. Later Jody said, I wish you had. So that's, that's a good memory. But basically it was just, a, we'd stay at a friend's house, uh, well not a friend, so, somebody knew them, but they were, they were jugglers uh, and they were also Mickey Mouse uh, memorabilia collectors, and they would open their doors, and, and we'd crash on the couch or the living room floor or whatever. Later, they'd come to Nashville, and we'd go to the St. Louis International Juggling Association, and they would ride their bicycle from Nashville to St. Louis while I would drive their car up there, and then uh, in St. Louis, we'd switch back. So, it was, yeah, it was a great community of people. I, I, I miss those days. Yeah, I bet. It sounds like a very amazing and special time. That's fantastic. How did you meet Jody, actually? I met Jody oh, through, caving. through caving. Yep, yeah. he was my, he's actually one of my first friends in Nashville. I went to a Nashville Grotto meeting, and he and Avis were the first two people to introduce themselves to me, and they were my first friends. Okay. Well, you do you know I have a caving background also? No. I mean, I knew you went and you're part of the caving crew, but tell me about that. Well, I don't have a... I, I'm not extensively involved like Jody and Bill Overton were, but back in college at MTSU, there was a caving group, and I joined it just for the heck of it uh, and joined the NSS back then. I, I did not maintain my membership, but... Um, the, the head guy, he said, okay, who wants to go caving this Saturday? And I said, oh, okay, sure, why not? And so I went along, and we went to Espy Cave. And are you familiar with Espy? Mm -hmm. Yep, I've been there. Well, uh, back then, not now, but back then, this would have been 
right around just before I went in the Marine Corps, so it would have been 69 or 70 right in there. You could go up to the house, park your car, and say, and knock on the door and say, hey, is it all right if we go back and see Espy? And there was a nice little gentle trail. You could walk back to the mouth of the cave, and that was my first introduction. I said, oh, this is cool. Later, uh, the house changed ownership, and the new owners weren't so friendly. You had to park around the back and hike down the hill. Then the second cave I went to was uh, um, Indian Grave Point, and I, I remember going back in there and then later taking a, a group of my college roomies in there because I knew where to go. And, but we found a new passage. I said, let me go and I'll check it out. And I went in and circled all the way back around. I didn't know where I was going, but I circled and followed and followed and followed. Finally came out and I found a candy wrapper where we had had lunch. And I, I hollered back, it's okay, come on. And they thought I was saying, help me, I'm stuck. And they came, they, they came running through and finally, okay, here we are. I said, great. He said, we thought you were stuck. I said, no. I said, come on, and everything's fine. <laughs> but then we made our way out, so that was Indian Grave Point. And then I got into, uh, I, I love repelling, but I did not enjoy climbing back out of the pits. Uh, I was in uh, ROTC for a while, and we did rappelling, and that was great. And so the same guy who got me into caving, he said, well, we're going to go out and do a pit. Uh, he said, we rappel down and climb back out. I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And I rappelled down with no problem. Zoom. It's, uh, it, was, it was easy. Coming back out, however, uh, was difficult. I had never <laughs> done it before, did not have instructions, and it was everybody was up there saying, come on already. You know, I was slow, you know, pushing the, I forget, Jumars, I think is what you call it. Uh, or did we use prussic knots back then? But anyway, I finally got tired of it. And when I got near the top, I decided I'd climb up on the ledge because I was tired of going up, down, up, down. But I slipped off the ledge and fell backwards. And I thought my life flashed in front of me for that. Uh, my life flashed in front of me for that moment that I fell back thinking this is the end, but of course the rope uh, caught me and I was fine. Then I climbed back out. But for years after that, I did not want to do any climbing out of pits. Uh, but what happened was uh, we did Fall Creek Falls video, which I think you've seen Bill Overton was on it, and he rigged, it wasn't a pit, but climbing out of this ravine we were in. Of course, Jody and Rebel did it with no problem, but Bill Overton hooked me a rope and some Jumars, and I was able to climb back out. And I said, okay. And he said, oh, I'm glad you got, got over your fear there. But uh, it was fun. <laughs> but yeah, I was never into caving like Jody is. But I did go. The, the most difficult cave I went into was with Jody. It's called, I don't know the official name, but Jody called it Pup's Cave. And the entrance to it was a 100-foot crawl. I mean, you walk, you, you, you went in, and immediately, th at that moment, you were crawling, and um, I don't know, the, I'm, I'm not claustrophobic, fortunately, but it was like, oh, at least 100 foot, if not further, before then it opened up, and it was quite a cave, as I remember, but the interest, the reason it's Pup's Cave is because there was a guy on the property who lived in a little trailer named Pup, I don't know his real name, but that's what Jody called him, and so it was Pup's Cave. And Jody said, yeah, he's a strange dude, man. So, you know, kind of mind your P's and Q's. So I shut up. But I just remember going. So Jody and I went and did that cave. 
And, uh, you know, I've done a few others, Snail Shell and uh, some cave that uh, is off uh, Ashland City Highway, which I don't remember what the name of that is. but Junkyard. Uh, yeah, okay, Junkyard. Uh, that's about it. But uh, uh, w we did a scene from one of my movies in Mammoth Onyx Cave, which is just past the uh, Mammoth Cave. Now, Mammoth Onyx and Mammoth Cave are two different things. Mammoth Cave, everybody's heard of. But you keep going. On the right is Mammoth Onyx Cave, and it's, of course, it's a commercial cave. But it was perfect for this scene, which is in the Second Coming. And we went there and negotiated with the people to let us film there. And they said, well, okay, you can film, but you have to break down all the equipment at uh, daybreak uh, uh, because we got people, you know, who are paying money to come in. So we'd film all night, break the equipment down, take it out, sleep all day, go back, set up all the equipment, and uh, shoot again. Uh, it was a two-day thing, but it was quite an adventure. But, uh, of course, we had red lights and blue lights and uh, fog and everything like that, so it was a pretty eerie but very... I could not have built this situation, uh, so we, we shot on location, but it was, uh, it was a great shoot, great oh, memory. Wow. And it's in, it's in the film, The Second Coming. That's amazing. I love that. Now, you've mentioned yeah. your book a few times. Can you, are you allowed to talk about that at all? Like, how did it feel to have an author approach you about writing a book about your family? Uh, well, way back when, my mom was still living, uh, there, there, an article, I, it, I'm not sure if Jimmy wrote this or another man wrote that, I've kind of forgotten, but originally in a magazine called Film Comment, someone got in touch with us, it may have been Jimmy, maybe another person, and wanted to do a story on the Ormans, mainly about my mom and dad. I mean, I didn't have anything to say at the time. But um, I, I believe it was a phone interview, and they did. And it was a good good article. And then that led to Jimmy calling my mom. Uh, at, you know, I don't mean the next day, but shortly thereafter. Uh, Jimmy McDonough called my mom and said he'd like to come down and meet her and do an in-depth interview. And he did. Uh, and I was there for most of it. And they would talk for hours, and he'd record all of it, and he'd ask her all the intimate questions, uh, in-depth about vaudeville that you were asking me, and all that sort of stuff. He recorded all of it, and then he went home, and I lost touch with him for 20 years, and my mom passed away, and I thought, <clears throat> and I thought, well, I guess the book will never happen, and then I forget how this happened, but I... Jimmy and I became reacquainted on Facebook. Both of us uh, under different names. Uh, I was Ron Narrow at the time, and uh, he was uh, Jimmy Vapor. And um, we, we became reacquainted. And he said, I said, boy, I wish that book. Had. He said, well, I'm working on things. And in the interim, he had become friendly with Nicholas Winding Refn. Look him up on IMDb. And one of Jimmy, and Jimmy is now working with Nicholas on several projects. One is his website, buynwr.com. The other are a series of books. Uh, one is the Orman book, uh, which is due to be released, uh, as, as I'm saying this, it's due to be released shortly as this is being viewed. It's recently out, and uh, maybe we can put a link to how to get a hold of it. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, um, Jimmy then called me on Skype. Oh, oh, no, Nick, he invited me to Indianapolis where Nicholas was going to be and Jimmy was going to be. And they said, can you come up and let's talk? Well, I, ha I had an accident 
not a bad accident, just a car accident, but uh, it made it so I could not do the trip. But I still, we talked on the phone, and Nicholas uh, Winding Ruffin said, I'd like to finance the book. And I said, hey, it sounds good to me. Uh, of course, it didn't happen that cleanly. But uh, we began to talk, and I've talked for probably 20 hours, if not more, on Skype with Jimmy, him recording me the whole time. And then other things happened. Uh, Jimmy had to do a different book. He had to uh, help Nicholas launch the website. Nicholas had to get some more content put out there. So I guess for about five, six years after that initial meeting, it was uh, on the back burner. And then Jimmy said, well, I've got to finish the Orman book. And, uh, and he has. As of last, uh, not last October, a year and a half ago, October, was my mom's, I, I took my mom's ashes and placed them at the Bill Rice Ranch next to my dad's uh, marker. So now it's June Orman, Ron Orman. And Jimmy was there along with Rebel and Donna and Carol and Ernesto and Frank and Andy Van Roon and um, I, can't, I, can't, uh, I can't think of who else was there, but uh, oh, Mark Ramey and um, Mark Ramey's, I, I, I can't think of who else. Oh, Jewel, Jewel Peach. Uh, and maybe someone else I'm missing, but anyway. Uh, they were there. Jimmy was there. He flew in with his uh, lady friend Natasha, uh, or Natalia rather, from Portland, Oregon, just to be for that. And he said, uh, it, "This means so much to me to be here today." And June, I finished the book. It took me 20 years, but I finished it, and he did. And as a matter of fact, uh, as this is being recorded, I just talked to Jimmy a couple hours ago, and he said, hey, I got one more question to ask you, because it goes to print, once again, as this is being recorded, it goes to print Thursday, and then it will be out in May of 2023, and depending on when this airs, uh, possibly, like I said, there'll be a, a link to how you can purchase it. It's uh, a thousand pictures in there. Um, wow. It's a coffee table type book. Uh, it's not going to be inexpensive. But now, why did I do it and how did I feel? Well, I mean, although I'm talking to you and this is fun, when I pass, because I'm not a kid anymore, uh, the Orman name would pass with me. But this way, it continues on at least during the lifetime of Nicholas Wending Reffin. And he is an A-list director, and who knows what will happen with you know, his products and <clears throat> his uh, accumulation over the time but hopefully his children will continue it. So this allows me and my parents to uh, you know, walk forward into the future without being forgotten. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I think Woody Allen said, I, I don't want to just be uh, remembered forever. I want to live forever. But, you know, that can't happen. But uh, anyway, second best thing. It can in print, and I love it so much. And we absolutely will include the link to for people to be able to to get that book and your your you your parents have touched so many lives i saw a video on your facebook page where i think it was your mom's 90th birthday and it looked yeah. like that was like you and her were dressed up and you got the limo like what was that night like for you well i'm going to uh once again as this is recorded if anybody visits my facebook page uh both videos will be up there but i'm going to upload part two uh, next thursday i enjoy the throwback Thursdays. Uh, what was that like? Well, I, I did it 
for my mom more than anything. It was her 90th birthday. She was kind of feeble at that time. Uh, and Jim Ridley wrote somewhere um, that she was feeble until, you know, she got on stage and was performing and then the energy filled her. She was always a performer. How did it make me feel? It was great. The only thing I wished I'd have said uh, was, now that I have your attention, I want to talk to you about Amway products. <laughs> I always <laughs> wanted to say that, but, but I never did. But uh, it was a packed house. Uh, I got to perform. My mother got to do Q&As. Uh, Andy said uh, just yesterday, he said it was like the two, well, actually he said it in the comments. He said the two of you were like a, a vulnerable team. Uh, people were there in the audience, which I hadn't seen for well, one was Diane Jordan, who's in The Exotic Ones. I hadn't seen her since we made it, uh, and she was always there. Tom Bixby, who we were going to do a film together, didn't work out, but we became friends. He came, he flew in from uh, one of the coasts, I forget which. Um, Wendy, uh, who you saw was the, uh, the eye candy of the shot, uh, she was there. So it was a great night, and the place was packed. A lot of my friends were there, a lot of my mom's friends were there and flowers were given to her. It was a, a breath. And then later, like a week later, uh, then Jody and Carol and a whole bunch of other people staged the Egyptian party at their house. So it was like a, you know quite a couple of weeks for my mom and myself, and it was a, a great memory. And uh, I, I upload the videos, you know, so it'll be preserved, uh, so, you know, people can enjoy it. It's been on YouTube for a while, but, you know, Facebook is my particular group of people who uh, knew me and maybe knew my mom. So quite a feeling, quite a remembrance. Yeah, it looked like a very special night. And she got a standing ovation, which is... Standing O, yes. Yeah, yeah standing O was really, really cool for her. Now, if there is someone out there with an interest in film, maybe starting a YouTube channel, what advice would you have for them? Well, you know, just last week I was listening to a podcast by Lex Friedman, and he interviewed the, uh, I guess maybe the most famous YouTuber out there, The Beast. Uh, have you seen his channel? Mm -hmm. I, I'd never even heard of it, but I went up and looked, and I looked at some of his videos, and they were pretty freaking amazing. I have to, I have to uh, say that. What advice do I give? Well, number one, never give up. Uh, unless you do something spectacular, you're not going to get noticed on the first one. Even The Beast didn't. He said when he goes back and looks, Consistency, being unique, being yourself, finding something that people are interested in. And it doesn't mean it has to be a movie. It can be, uh, you know, cliff diving or caving or, as Jody uh, likes, uh, uh, pulling people out of the mud. Um, I forget the name of this place, but I, I, I have um, what I had intended to be doing at this time of my life was to be traveling in an RV around the country, not uh, on the interstates, but an off-road RV. I can't do it due to my vision, but I go up there daily and, and watch um, van life. And a particular girl I follow, Regretless, who uh, refurbished a bus, and now she's got a house. So YouTube gives anyone the ability to become recognized. That There's a lot of competition out there. I mean, that's the good and the bad of YouTube. Anybody can make a channel. If you got a Gmail account, you've got a YouTube account. But consistency and uniqueness and follow your dream and your passion and put it up there, whatever it is. The best advice I can give is follow your passion, be consistent, 
try to be unique, uh, do your best job, and never give up. Follow your dream, whatever your dream may be. I can't tell you that. I wish I could say, do this particular kind of video and you'll be successful. And maybe you will be. But look for inspiration. Don't be a copycat. Uh, I went up and looked at the beast and I said, I couldn't do that because he's, he's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars doing some of this stuff. But do what is meaningful to you and then keep doing it. And then uh, you know, post it on social media and all that. You know, everybody knows that part. But uh, follow your dream. Never, never, never give up. Uh, whoever said that back in World War II, Harry Truman, Winston Churchill, uh, some, somebody. But uh, it's, there's a lot of truth. And uh, that's all I can say. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to know more about the film industry in Nashville, where would you recommend they go? Well, there's so many places now to go. I mean, a starting point would be film-com.com. Um, film Nashville no longer exists. Uh, Tennessee Entertainment Alliance org is a good place join the mailing list uh, and then um, get involved in some of the uh, community activities which have now blossomed up without Andy's or my intervention um, uh, or participation they've just formed there's film meetups there's a Tennessee Screenwriting Association uh, run by a good friend of mine uh, uh, Jeff Chase or at least he's the current president uh, there's so many opportunities but I guess one thing uh, which has always been hard for me, is uh, being a little bit ADD. It's so easy uh, in today's world of the Internet to be, uh, you know, follow that dream and the way that dream. Wait a minute, let me go this way. Let me go that way. Find your path and stick to it and let everything kind of fall away. And always surround yourself with people who believe in you and you believe in them. And together, uh, you know, it takes a village, as they say, so remember that and accomplish it i love that that is amazing and beautiful advice and i am so grateful for your time and your willingness to share your stories and i just really appreciate you i guess that's us signing off huh? that's us signing off <laughs> that's it with tim ormond next week we talk with jenna hickman a woman who is making strides with her career in the real estate industry. It's funny looking back because in Florida, actually, I met with an agent down there once. Because um, I, I transitioned jobs several times in Florida. I went from being an event coordinator to then actually getting personal training certified. So I went from events to fitness, and that's where all that started. But in that time, I actually did meet with an agent down there once and just talked about you know what is the day in the life of a real estate agent what does this entail hey thanks for listening to journey to the rise please do follow us on your podcast app so you have the latest episode downloaded if you want to follow us on instagram our account is at journey to the rise podcast this episode was researched produced and edited by girl boss productions please remember to be kind to yourself because when you are kind to you it is easier to be kind to others. I'm Lucretia, and you've been listening to Journey to the Rise. Mm -hmm.